Good morning. I hope you're having a great morning. And it's about to get even better because you're listening to Dura, the podcast about what keeps neurosurgeons up at night. My name is Marike Broekman and I'm a neurosurgeon from the Netherlands. I'm super excited to start this first episode, especially because I got to interview my colleague and friend Philippe Schucht. Hello Marike. Philippe is responsible for education and training of neurosurgeons in Bern, Switzerland. He's the head of the neurooncological center there, and he's an honorary professor at the Medical University of Rangon in Myanmar. Because of COVID-19, I had to interview Philippe on the phone, which is why the audio quality might be a bit lower than you're used to. Regardless, I wish you a lot of fun listening to Philippe's story, which, of course, started with the question, how did you sleep last night? Sleep was good. I sleep was good. Sleep was short. Um, we are today at the 5th of November. Um, things have picked up in Switzerland. You know, COVID and numbers went up and has a lot of implications. So we have to, you know, we have limited capacities so and what we can do. And, and then suddenly there was a whole array of, of new questions um, as we have to think about whose treatment we can postpone. Now we have patients with low-grade glioma, young patients, stable so far, but how long can you wait until they undergo malignant transformation? Well, and then you have the vascular team, um, elective aneurysms, asymptomatic. Uh, sure, you can wait, but you know every day is a very small risk. Who has the priority? Can we just uh, postpone all the elective degenerative surgeries in the elderly? Knowing that their life will be a bit more difficult in these already difficult times. So, you know, it's these times of crisis that makes you kind of reconsider the value of many things we do. Yeah. Are you concerned about your patients or are you concerned about your patients in Myanmar? Well, Myanmar, now that's an entirely different field again. Um, Myanmar was actually, they shut down the borders very early. They had very limited COVID activities. They had a much larger negative impact by travel restrictions. So Myanmar is a very large country between India, China, and Thailand, and the, the Bay of Bengal. 50 million people living there, a uh, developing country, one must say, uh, after decades of military, uh, military uh, dictatorship. They opened up about 10 years ago, and they largely depend on tourism. Now, how many friends of you have gone to Myanmar in the last you know, six months? No one. So they suffer a lot from an economic perspective. Um, Healthcare-wise, it's, it's been very calm. And it has picked up about a month, two ago, first cases. But even today, you know, they have like a thousand cases per day, uh, which is a tenth of what we have in Switzerland for population, which is uh, you know, almost 10 times as large. The main problem they have is, especially on the medical community, the, the healthcare system is so rudimentary, it's, it's so small, that their resources become scarce very early on. Uh, so elective surgery in the neurosurgical community goes down. They, they don't have the resources to do this. And I'm especially worried about the young, pay, young doctors because their educational opportunities, of course, um, become uh, scarce as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the program there? What we've done about eight years ago, uh, I was looking for something, you know, to do beyond our normal work and life uh, here in, in, in the Western countries. And 
Um, having worked early on in Africa, I th- there were two things that really struck me. The, the first one is what we can do as surgeons. A lot of development aid um, and help in this developing country focuses on you know, immunization programs, maternity, these kind of things. There's a very interesting Lancet report 2005 on surgery stating that Uh, more than 30% of all cases worldwide in developing countries are dealt with with surgery. And we've neglected this for a very long time. Uh, And when working in developing countries, you realize how much you can change, how much you can do for people down there. So that's, I think, one key lesson I heard from earlier on. And, And the second thing is that if you look at the volume of work to be done in this country, and neurosurgery, with all the head trauma, with all the deformities in the young, is always going to be a priority for these countries. The impressive thing is the sheer volume of the work that has to be done in these developing countries. Um, quite often, we have teams go somewhere. You know, you have neurosurgical or, or cardiac surgical teams going to a country, but what they can achieve is a lot for some patients, but it's almost negligible for a large community. When you think of that, it gets you that ultimately you need a large workforce in a country doing the work. And this large workforce preferably comes from its own population. So if you want to change uh, medical healthcare in these countries, what you really have to do is to develop a sustainable education plan for the young doctors. And that's what we've been doing. So we picked uh, one place, one region, Southeast Asia, more and more focus on Myanmar. Eight years ago, we started a program with local partners, helping them to improve neurosurgical education, which at that time, eight years ago, was very, very limited. Doing workshops, courses, educational surgeries in their country, and permitting each and every of, of their young neurosurgeons to come to Switzerland as a fellow, and then see how kind of state-of-the-art neurosurgery is being done in order for them to copy it and do it at their own place. And so you mentioned uh, the workforce problem and your approach by reaching out to the local partners, etc. How did you in- identify the partners, get them involved and willing to send trainees over to Switzerland, for instance? Yes, the, you, you touch on, on the key problem uh, of doing programs like this. If we try to parachute into countries and just do something and then go out again, it's never going to be sustainable. And the key aspect of any of these kind of NGO work or any projects like this is that you need a key figure or a key group on site uh, which helps you. And you need their support. You need the support from the medical community on site. You need the support from the political uh, figures on site. Uh, unless you have that, every project more or less will be doomed uh, if it really wants to be sustainable. Uh, we, some, some 10 years ago, we looked at many countries uh, where we could do what we had in mind. Um, and then Myanmar came up. Myanmar had, had a very special situation. They are a very large country. Um, they left the military dictatorship uh, some 10 years ago, opened up to Western ideas. Um, and and to tourism and commerce. And in the same time, medical uh, healthcare was badly neglected. You would go to university hospitals and they looked 
basically the, the way they looked in the 40s. Uh, the surgery theatres had all the equipment the Brits would be using some 70 years ago. And so we realized there was a great opportunity uh, to build something up there. There was a, there was a, a key figure, uh, Professor Mia Tu, who was a very charismatic neurosurgeon trained in the UK. And he helped us some kind of a, a crystallization point. And together with him, we built up this program. And you mentioned coming there, seeing hospitals that looked like they were built in the 40s and nothing's changed. Um, what made most impact on you there? And do you recall a specific case that, you know, um, was sort of your drive to, that you know, contribute to your drive to go there? What always strikes me there is, is how well they work uh, and how patient these people are. You would have, you know, huge boards, 100 patients in the same room each one of them being taken care of with one of, of their relatives sleeping below their bed, uh, doing the washing, the dressing, and all of that themselves, patiently waiting for an opportunity. Uh, you would see emergency rooms filled with people with epidural hematoma waiting for their turn, taking sometimes the spot of the one in front of them because he died in the meantime. I found it very, very difficult to, to stomach these, these pictures. And at the same time, seeing more and more young doctors uh, who, who learn, who, have, who are very skilled and learn what we do as well and, and kind of combine what they've learned in their countries and what they've seen in ours uh, and then improve treatment, um, not only as surgeons, but also as organizers. A lot of what we can change in these countries is not the skill set. They are, they are great surgeons as well. Uh, but what we really can teach them also is how to organize the functioning unit, how to speed it up, how to make it more efficient, uh, how to take care of post-surgical post -surgical complications, how to avoid infections, how to catheters. These things, I think, are the ones that, that make it, uh, a great difference. And, and that's, that's more time-consuming than you know, teaching one person how to clip an aneurysm, is how to become efficient and safe in everyday routine. So here yeah, I learned a lot. Uh, there was another incident which um, was very important for what we do there. I remember about five, six years ago, we went to a place called Miek. Uh, Miek is it's a gorgeous place south of Myanmar. Um, it's actually in the Adamant Sea, um, very close to, let's say, Phuket, kind of southern Thailand. And very often when we go to Myanmar, we, we visit with local doctors, one of the more remote places, and so Miek was one of them. And we ended up in a small community hospital and saw a young lady there. So this, this mother of two, 21-year-old woman, um, was Glasgow, I don't know, 11, 10, something like that. They had um, a very simple CT scan, and the CT scan shows an intraventricular lesion, very large. It was difficult to say exactly what it is. It might have been a meningioma. And of course, as a consequence of that, an impressive hydrocephalus. There was nothing there, and, and it was post-rainy season, so the roads was almost not usable. Um, and, and thinking what to do, we then, you know, improvised. We used uh, a urine catheter, sterilized as an EVD, trying to build an EVD for that. And, and actually, that works very well, and, and the lady clears up Glasgow 13, 14, and then you have to decide what to do uh, from this very remote place. 
with this patient, intraventricular tumor, EVD inside, getting better, but now actually need surgery. Um, so we organized lots. Uh, you know, we called up the University Hospital in Yangon, where we normally do to do surgery there. Uh, there, were, there was a small airfield close by, so we organized a plane to, to get her from there to, to the capital. It takes us two, three days just to get it all organized. And then finally, we're in Yangon uh, with this local girl uh, and now ready to, to do surgery. And now we organize all of the surgery, and then suddenly she's gone. She's not at the hospital anymore. And it took some time to figure out what happened. And actually what happened was that in the meantime, her family somehow managed to organize people or get to Yangon and then take her back to her village where she would die. And you wonder why would they do this? Because I was, you know, sure death ahead uh, instead of having at least a try on surgery. And the reason was that they came from a minority living in this archipelago around Miek from these islands, and, and in their culture, they get reborn, they get reincarnated, they're all Buddhists. And the family was super afraid that if she would die during surgery in Yangon, she would be reborn there, incapable of communicating with the people, incapable of being in touch with the rest of her family. And so the, the very important you know, take-home message is especially in developing countries, as we Westerners with our ideas of how life is and how after life is and all of that, are sometimes just not the ideal doctors and surgeons for these people, uh, which reinforces into believing that if we really want to change healthcare in these systems, we have to focus on the local medical community. We cannot just parachute in and do things. We have to do it together. We have to help them become uh, you know, sufficient and sustainable medical community. Wow, that's I yeah, that's very impressive what you just told. And I think you're absolutely right. You should focus on what's there and not fly in thinking thinking you can do everything because you're not always there, uh, and it needs it needs to be like a system change. So if you were to have like more time in a day. What would you do? How can you speed up this process a little bit? And how did you learn all these things? Ah, good question. What would you do if you had more time? Well, so far, like if we stay on the program in Myanmar, um, it has picked up. Now, with the first uh, Myanmar fellow who came to Switzerland, uh, I think that was, yes, seven years, eight years ago, became well, he's becoming a professor now. He gets his own clinic, his own hospital, actually teaching hospital uh, to build up. And now you see what leverage means. So suddenly, you know, the fellow becomes a teacher. Um, the teacher has his own neurosurgeon um, who grow up and who become teachers in their turn. Um, and so we see that within a few years, uh, it's going to be self-sustainable. And I think, I hope, within you know the next four or five years, uh, the program will actually run completely on its own. Um, that will be beautiful. I would love to go back uh, now in this, at that time, uh, it's unfortunate, not possible. I should be now actually in Myanmar. We normally go for three, four weeks in, in November to work there. Uh, so actually I do have more time and I just can't travel. Uh, and I hope that will improve soon. Uh, we, we now have our you know yearly mission there, um, 
in spring instead of autumn. We'll see if that's possible to do. Yeah. And so do you rely on uh, uh, other mechanisms than just going there? Do you use WhatsApp? Do you Are you being consulted about specific cases when you're in Switzerland, for example? Yes. I mean, they have their own system. You know, they, they use Viber and, and so on. But And Facebook. Unfortunately, Facebook is the number one social media in Myanmar. So you will regularly see images um, of aneurysm, trauma, and then some deformities, malformation that you couldn't you know, imagine things would look like that, um, getting shown around on, on, the, on these social medias as well. Um, very often they will send you over WhatsApp email uh, certain images of patients um, suggesting some treatment and then tr trying to do, get a second opinion. But actually, you know, very similar to what we do as well. So we we, we do stay in, in close contact uh, on many fronts. I'm, I'm happy also that we're by far not the only one being active in, in Myanmar. There's uh, there are groups from Japan, um, as well as from from the UK and the US, um, who participate in some educational programs as well. So that there's a, a growing community of people who who help each other out. And what do you think uh, a neurosurgeon from another country listening in who wants to help? What can that person do? If I were to help, what could I do? Great question. Same question I, I asked myself some you know, more than 10 years ago. Um, I think a key aspect is, is to start early with this. Or at least that's my opinion. I, I think we shouldn't wait until... You know, they can't use us anymore at our own hospital and then look for somebody else who could have some use for us. Um, I think this has to be part of your life. You have to want to do this as, as part of what you'll do here. And if that's the case, I, I, I really suggest start early. Um, I think it's key to, to be honest about what you want to achieve. Do you want to do surgeries, you know, in, in bigger volumes, in, in more... Um, you know, extensive cases than what you do at your own place? Uh, do you want to improve education? Do you want to improve the life of some versus the life of many? I think these are, are crucial questions uh, that should be at the very beginning of, of what you want to do. Then think about the different um, organization and places there are. I believe you, you should pick a place you like going because you you will have to go many times. If you want to do this in a sustainable manner, you'll go year after year. So you better make it a place where you personally like to be because once you're happy there, you'll be of much greater help than if you find the place miserable and don't like being. Uh, also in our organizations, there are so many organizations around, uh, larger, smaller NGOs doing different things. Um, you know, spend a lot of time looking at them, looking what their mission is, and if that somehow overlaps with what you want to do. Uh, and that is especially true if, if you want to start your own project. Um, think about the support you'll have in doing this. It's, one thing is, is to have the support from your own institution, you know, your chief letting you go, uh, maybe your own government giving you some money, um, getting a grant for to do some work, that's one thing. Even more important is that you have the support on site. 
So you need the buy-in from the medical community. Um, and, and the buy-in, which really means that they understand that their vision they have for the country overlaps with your vision. So not only that they tolerate you for something, but that you really get their buy-in and that you build something you can do together. That's absolutely key. If you, if you don't have this support and this buy-in from the medical community and the political powers, then it's almost impossible, I think, to do something. Yeah, thank you. I think this this is great advice. Consider what you want to do. What's the context you'll be working in, etc. I've reviewed papers uh, from people wanting to go to low-middle-income countries to increase the volume of the cases they do or to perform surgeries they're actually not allowed or able to do in their home country. What do you think of that? Yeah, this is ethically always challenging. On one side, um, you might say, you know, in, in certain countries, uh, some surgeries are not being done. So how about we send a team and they do it? And it's, I think it, it's an important part that you will help for some individuals will be helped in that country. So for some people, you make a big difference. Then there are the downsides. Is your quality of what you're going to do be sufficient to actually be of help for these people? I mean, if, if, if you don't do this in a high enough caseload here, do you have the routine? And now we want to do this in a, in a situation uh, with a lot less optimal systems, meaning the nurses, the infection situation, the post-operative care, what happens if there's a complication one month down the road? And now you as, so let's say, the only actor who could do it, you're not in the country anymore. These are very important questions that we have to be honest about and that we have to reconsider before going into countries in the situation that you described. You don't have it. There's also, also a second thing which is crucial. If once we parachute into a country, country to do some surgeries, what happens to the medical community on site? You know, if the, if, if the local population sees that whenever a complicated case comes in, foreigners have to be flown in to deal with that. What that does say about their own medical community? It's bad for them. It makes them look bad. So, you know, every time we, we parachute the team in to do one surgery, that might have a negative impact on your own local community in the country, unless you do this surgery together, unless you make it an educational surgery. But in order to make it an educational surgery, you have to be an expert on this particular surgery. There's no way around it. Do you, you agree with me that uh, people should not be patients in low middle income countries, should not be like means to an end? They should not be... <laughs> Uh, like guinea pigs for surgeons who want to uh, optimize Never. their practice. Okay. No, this is ethically difficult. And every time we go somewhere to do something, we have to pose this question. Is a patient really going to benefit from it? Are you good enough to do the surgery in worse conditions that you will do it at your place? Will he really derive a benefit from this? Will the local community, and that includes the local doctors, will they benefit from you doing this? Because your surgery might have a negative impact on the image that the population has of its own doctors. So I think these are the, the, the key questions we have to pose ourselves all the time once we go to some countries to do surgeries. Absolutely.
So what would your advice be for medical students or residents uh, that might be listening to this podcast that and they and that want to go uh, to low middle income countries and help improve the, the healthcare situation and contribute towards global neurosurgery? Well, inform yourself. So there are many actors in in this field. There are many many people who have projects, who have NGOs, who go to countries to do projects like this. Um, there's a key. There's a, a very interesting figure called Key Park. Uh, key Park works for the um, WHO and coordinates a lot of of work being done in developing countries. Um, there's Franco Servade, our president of the WFNS, uh, who has been crucial in trying to develop kind of a common platform. We've seen this in Myanmar. Many groups go, go there. Sometimes some groups don't know what the others do. Franco Servade is, is, is um, setting up a platform where this can be coordinated. And then hopefully where young people can also start reading into and seeing who is active in what countries and what type of programs. Again, the type of program is important of what we want to do. And then just call them up. Call them up, join a mission, just to watch what they do. And then think of how you can contribute in the long range. I think the key thing is really something you have to do over many years, not just as a single time point, uh, but something that you will do over many years. And I think then it will be an incredibly beautiful addition to your professional and private life as well. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, Marie. If you're listening to this podcast and you would like to learn more about challenging cases in neurosurgery, global neurosurgery, or would like to connect with neurosurgeons, please visit us at www.eans.org. Thank you for listening. I hope to reconnect with you in two to four weeks. For now, have a great day.